Let's start with a picture of what Paul is up to in this letter to the church at Rome. Break it down into three parts. Chapters 1 through 8, he describes the gospel, preaches the gospel, the life-changing promises that God has given us in Jesus Christ, complete forgiveness for all of our sins, God's very love poured into our hearts. We know him, we feel him, we love him. The promise that every circumstance in our lives, he is going to work out for the greatest good of our good in God. Everything working out for good. Knowing that God's glory awaits us forever, that he will keep us on the road to heaven all the way to being in his fellowship, beholding his glory forever. The list just goes on and on. Chapters 1 through 8, the life-giving promises that God has given us in Christ. But when Paul comes to the end of chapter 8, he knows he has to answer a question before he can get into the application of how those promises change our lives. Here's what Paul has to answer. Back in chapter 3, Paul had said, and he preached this wherever he went, that everyone, Gentiles and Jews, needed to be saved, needed to be forgiven, needed to be reconciled to God. And whenever Paul would preach this, some hands would go up. Some of the Jewish leaders would say, well, now, wait a minute. And they would object because they thought wrongly They thought that in the Old Testament, God promised that every Israelite by birth was automatically saved, forgiven, reconciled to God. And so they would have thought, Paul, if your preaching is right, that would mean God's promise to Israel was wrong. That would mean God's promise has failed, which would be a disastrous consequence because if God's promises to Israel can't be trusted. How can we trust God's promises in the rest of the scriptures? You feel the weight of that. That's why Romans 9 through 11, Paul's answering that question. What Paul wants to spell out is why God's promises can be trusted. And his answer is that God never promised to save everyone born as an Israelite. We're saved by faith, not by our race. We must choose to trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our Lord, as our heart-satisfying treasure. But Paul, as we've seen, wants to dig deeper than that. He wants to raise the question, how can sinful people, as all of us have been, how can sinful people whose hearts are far from God, whose hearts have no interest in God, how can people whose Hearts are like that, come to a place where they will trust Jesus as their Savior and their Lord and their treasure. How does that happen? And in Romans 9, Paul explains how. It's because God supernaturally changes the hearts of those he chooses to save. At great cost, great cost to God, unfathomable cost. We just cannot conceive. He sent his own son his beloved son, his willing son to the cross where he was punished for the sins of all who will trust him. And so because of what Jesus did, then God in amazing mercy 
can change hearts, can give faith, can save people, people who don't want to be saved, people who are running away from God, people who are as enemies as all of us have been. That's why you are trusting Jesus tonight. It's not because you are better than anyone else. You are not. I am not. In perfect justice, God passed over many sinners who were just as sinful as you and I were, justly leaving them to continue in their sin all the way to judgment. It's heartbreaking, but it's just, and it's right. But in amazing mercy, amazing mercy, God chose to change your heart and to save you. That's why you have faith tonight. So the fact that many Israelites in Paul's day, majority, were not trusting Christ, does not show that God's promise to them had failed. God never promised to save every ethnic Israelite. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, which God mercifully, at great cost, has chosen to give to all those he chooses to save. Remember how Paul closed last week's passage, chapter 9, verses 22 through 24. This will transition us in into tonight's passage. Verse 22. Remember this? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, remember the black velvet backdrop for the diamond? Remember, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Remember Pharaoh? That's the illustration Paul used last week. What if God did that, verse 23, in order to, here's his purpose, make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now notice that word called, very important word to understand here. When, when God calls people to salvation. He's not just inviting them to salvation. He's producing in them salvation. His call to salvation produces salvation in hearts. Think about how Jesus called Lazarus to rise from the dead. Remember, Lazarus, come forth. That wasn't just a call. Lazarus, come on out. That call produced life in Lazarus. That call caused him to become alive. That call made happen what the call was about. And that's what God does in our hearts when he calls us to salvation. He produces salvation in our hearts. He changes our hearts by his call. He gives us faith by his call. That's what Paul's talking about there in verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles. And what Paul wants to do now in the rest of chapter 9, all the way through to the end of chapter 11, is Paul wants to tell us more of what has God promised when it comes to the salvation of Gentiles and what has God promised when it comes to the salvation of Jews. He wants to show us all of his promises are being fulfilled. All of his promises will be fulfilled. He wants to help us see what his promises are, both to strengthen our faith in his promises and to display the glory of his beautiful, cosmic, massive, powerful plan of salvation to display his glory. 
That's where we're going tonight. Are you ready? Let's go. Next two verses, verses 25 and 26, Paul answers the question, what does God promise about the salvation of the Gentiles? And Paul answers that by quoting the prophet, the Old Testament prophet, Hosea, who prophesied around 700 BC at a time when the vast majority of Israel had walked away from God, were bowing down and worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth and burning their babies as sacrifices to God, just doing horrifying things. This is what was happening in Israel around 700 BC. They had sinned so persistently, so wickedly, that God had said, you are no longer my people. Feel the weight of that. God saying to Israel, you are not my people. Look at what God says in verses 25 and 26. Paul's quoting from Hosea. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called once again, sons of the living God. So God had cast off his people, Israel. Now he's promising, bring you back. Change your hearts, bring you back. You will be my people, beloved, sons of the living God. But now what Paul does with this prophecy in Hosea is to apply it to Gentiles. Yes, it's true for Israel. God is doing that. But Paul applies it to Gentiles, which makes sense because we Gentiles had not been God's people, right? Israel was God's people. And here, God is promising, not just about Israel, but that we Gentiles, Gentiles, will be called God's people. You realize that? Saved Gentiles are part of God's people. We will be called beloved. We will be called sons of the living God. And notice, this is talking about Gentiles as a people. Gentiles are going to be saved. And if you read the Old Testament carefully, you'll see this throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 12, 3, remember when God is talking to Abraham and he says, from your seed, from your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. People from every nation, every language, every tribe will come to faith. There will be people saved from every ethnic group, every language group, every tribal group. There will be people saved. That's in the Old Testament. All those people becoming part of God's people. I was thinking about Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. And it will come to pass that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. God is going to save a massive number of Gentiles. That's what Paul wants us to understand from verses 25 to 26. That's what God promises about the salvation of Gentiles. Aren't you glad to hear that? Those prophecies are why you're trusting Jesus Christ tonight. That's, that's you right there mentioned. You are now called beloved. You are part of God's people. You are a son, a daughter of the living God. This prophecy, God's done it. He's fulfilled his promise and he's going to continue fulfilling it. Now, what does God promise regarding the salvation of Israel? That's in the next three verses. And to answer that, Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah. 
And what Isaiah prophesies about Israel is far different than what Hosea had prophesied, what Paul had quoted in the earlier verses. Look at what Isaiah says, verses 27 and 28. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. See, God had promised Abraham that the people of Israel would be as many as the sand on the seashore, a huge nation. And God had done that, that had happened. But God says that even though the nation will be so large, only a small remnant will be saved. And in verse 28, it seems God is saying, I will surely fulfill my judgment. I'm going to bring judgment upon ungodly in Israel, but there will always be a remnant who will be saved. All through the Old Testament, there was always a remnant. Remember the 7,000 who would not bend their knee to Baal? There were 7,000 of them. All through the Old Testament, there was always a remnant of believers. Many, many, many of Israel were not, but there was always a remnant as God promises here. And look at what he says in verse 29. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. That word offspring, same word Paul used back in chapter 9, verse 7, to describe not ethnic Israel, but saved Israel. Let's talk about saved people here. That's Paul's point. If God had not left them a saved remnant, they would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Horrible sin. Homosexuality and, and just a whole list of other sins as well. Just a godless, blatantly shaking their fist in God's face people. And what did God do? He poured fire and brimstone out upon Sodom and Gomorrah, completely destroying them. And what's shocking here is that Isaiah is saying if God had not saved a remnant of us, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Israel, our sins are as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah's. All the rest of us, before we were saved, all of our sins were as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah's. That's what we've all deserved. But look at God's mercy here. He's always going to be maintaining a remnant of saved people all the way through the Old Testament history, which is what God did. That's what God did. There was always be a remnant there would always be some believing Israelites. Now, I, I just, at this point, I had to jump ahead, though, to what Paul says in, in chapter 11. Because that's not the end of the story for Israel. It's not just the little remnants all the way through history. Look at what Paul says in Romans 11, 25 through 27. This is where Paul's going, but I just had to give you a little, just a little taste. Paul says that at the end of history, God is going to save every Israelite who's alive on the face of the earth. Every Israelite on the face of the earth at the end of history, God's going to save. Look at Romans 11, 25 through 27. Paul says, Paul's just talked about all these Gentiles being saved. And so he says, now Gentiles, lest you be wise in your sight, lest you think, you know, this is all about you. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. 
He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. He'll just come with his sovereign power and change hearts and give faith and bring repentance. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Picture this. Did you know that? At the end of history, this, this remnant all through God's promises, always be a remnant, remnant, and then boom, every ethnic Israelite. I mean, just picture Jewish people falling out of worshiping Jesus, reading the New Testament, singing worship songs like we sang tonight, worshiping Christ, praising Christ, glorifying Christ. That is going to be an awesome day. Lord, let that be soon. That's going to happen. That is promised. God will fulfill that. All ethnic Israelites on the earth at the end of history are going to come to genuine, heartfelt faith in Jesus Christ. God's going to bring that about. But at the time Paul's writing, there's just a remnant. And God's going to keep that remnant all the way through. There's a remnant. There's always a remnant of saved Israelites. Okay, here's what we've seen so far. End of verse 24, Paul says God will save both Jews and Gentiles. Verses 25 and 26, he says the number of Gentiles saved is going to be large, like a people, large. And then in verses 27 and 29, Paul says that God promises there will always be a remnant of believers, a small number of Jews who are genuinely trusting Jesus Christ. Now, Paul knows at this point his Jewish believers in Rome hearing this read are going to be shocked. The Jewish believers are going to be stunned at this point. Here's why. Remember, in the early church, they were all Jews to begin with. Remember, all 12 disciples were Jewish. Remember the day of Pentecost, God poured his spirit out in Acts chapter 2. That was the day of Pentecost, Jewish festival, 3,000. They were all Jewish. So the, the earliest days of the church, all the believers were Jewish, and they had a hard time understanding that the gospel could be applied to Gentiles. They had a hard time with that one, right? They struggled with that. And so while God poured his spirit out upon all the Jews in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, chapter 8, God poured out his spirit upon saved Samaritans. Samaritans saved? Are you kidding me? The gift of the Holy Spirit? No kidding. Yes. And then two chapters later, God poured his spirit out upon Gentiles. Cornelius' household, remember that? Wait, wait. No, Gentiles? Holy Spirit poured out upon them? Yes. So see, the point is, Jewish believers had a hard time figuring out that the gospel applied to Gentiles. You understand that? They figured it out. Aren't we glad? They all figured it out. Took some work, but God did it. He's patient. So it was not easy, though, at this point when Paul's writing this letter, for Jewish Christians to believe that Gentiles would be saved. They were still in, in transition. But now Paul is saying something even more shocking. The number of Gentile believers is going to be large. And there's just going to be a remnant of Israelite believers through history. And so this would have raised the question in a very poignant and heartbreaking way for the Jewish believers. Why have our people not accepted their Messiah. Aren't the Jewish people the people of God? Why haven't they come to faith in their promised Messiah? Why? And we know from earlier in Romans 9 that the ultimate answer is because God has justly passed over many Jewish people 
allowing them to continue in their sin and head toward judgment. That's the answer from God's side. But in these next verses, that's not the answer Paul gives. Paul wants to understand this from the human side. That is, what was happening in unbelieving Jews' hearts that made them turn away from Christ? What was happening in their hearts? And Paul answers that question in verses 30 to 33. Why are so few Jews being saved? Start with verses 30 to 31. Paul says, what shall we say then? Many Gentiles, remnant of Jews, what shall we say then? We, we will say this, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Hey, what's going on here? First of all, when Paul says that Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, what he means is that the Gentiles who ended up saved were not trying to earn their own righteousness before God. They were not trying to impress God with their obedience. Look at how righteous I am and what I've done, God. That's not what they were doing. No, God had done a work in their hearts, a humbling work in their hearts. They had seen that they were sinners. They had seen that they were in desperate need of a savior. They'd seen that God has provided Jesus to be the savior. They'd seen that they could never make themselves righteous before God. I desperately need a savior. I can't make myself righteous. God, you provided a savior. So they, they placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And God gave them Jesus' perfect righteousness as a gift. Boom! Righteous. 100% righteous, just like that. Are you kidding me? Just like that? Just like that. You understand? And that happened to you, right? The moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, I'm a sinner. I can't make myself righteous. I need to be righteous. I'm going to face your judgment. You've sent Jesus. Save me, Jesus. I trust you instantly, clothed, covered with Jesus' perfect righteousness and forgiven for all your sins. That's what happened to Gentiles. Okay, now, and that's why there are many believing Gentiles is because that's what happened. What about the Jews? What happened in their hearts? Notice God had given them a law that would lead them to righteousness. Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. He'd given them a law that would lead them to righteousness. And they pursued that law, Paul says, but they did not reach that law. God had given them a law that would lead to righteousness. They pursued it, but they didn't reach it. Why not? Verse 32. Why because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They did not pursue it by faith, get this, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Okay, here's what's going on. God had given them a law that would lead to righteousness. So why did they not gain righteousness? 
of that law, it's because they did not pursue it by faith. They tried to pursue it by works. See, the Old Testament law did not call people to become righteous by their own works. No, 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 no. It's not what the Old Testament law said. The Old Testament law called us to faith. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as a lifetime of perfect righteousness. Genesis 15, 6, right there. First book of the Old Testament. Did not call people to earning righteousness by works. It called people to faith. To earn righteousness from God by obedience is impossible for us sinners to do for many, many reasons. So the Old Testament called people to humble themselves, called the Jewish people, humble yourselves, confess your sin, see that you cannot make yourself righteous. The Old Testament called them to trust, to faith, put your trust in what God promises to do through the Messiah. He will forgive you. He will give you perfect righteousness. He will love you. Trust him. Don't try to work for this. You just come in you in your humility and your neediness. You trust him to do what you need done. And part of that would be giving them the gift of perfect righteousness. But tragically, except for the remnant, they did what many of us have done too, right? They turned the Old Testament, their Bible, we do the same thing with the New Testament, but they turned the Old Testament, their Bible, into a system of works, which we think will earn us righteousness before God. They tried to earn God's love, earn God's forgiveness, earn righteousness by obeying. But none of us can ever obey enough to make up for our sin. We can never obey enough to become righteous before God. That's what Israel tried to do in their pride. They tried and they failed. That's what Paul says. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because it did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And Paul says this shows they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. Verse 32 and 33. Again, why? Because he did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by, based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, God says, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, in this stone, will not be put to shame. Israel, tragically, should make us weep stumbled over the stumbling stone. What is the stumbling stone? It's Jesus. Jesus is the stumbling stone. He taught Matthew 24, Matthew 21, that he was the cornerstone that the builders rejected. Remember that passage? He is the stone of stumbling. And if you stop and think about it, this makes sense. See, the Old Testament law said, we can't make ourselves righteous enough to be saved. We must cast ourselves upon God's mercy and trust in what he would do through the Messiah. Then we'll become perfectly righteous as a gift from God. That's what the Old Testament law said. And Israel in their pride stumbled over that message. They stumbled over what the Old Testament law had said. Jesus taught the same thing. We can't make ourselves righteous enough to be saved. We must cast ourselves upon God's mercy. Trust what he would do through Jesus, the Messiah. 
And Israel's pride made them stumble over Jesus as well, because the Old Testament law's message of humbling yourself, putting your trust in what God would do through the Messiah, and Jesus' message, humble yourself, trust in what I'm here to do, they came together, and the proud stumble over that message. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. So you understand, the whole Old Testament law pointed ahead to what the Messiah would do. Jesus lived the sinless life we should have lived. And Jesus died the punishment for sin that we deserved to experience. And when we humble ourselves, Jews, Gentiles, we, all of us, when we humble ourselves, admit that we can't make ourselves righteous, that we need to be covered with the gift of Jesus' own perfect righteousness, When we trust Jesus to do this for us, we are instantly forgiven. All our sins, forgiven, no guilt. His love ran red and our sins are washed white, right? And we are given the gift of Jesus' perfect righteousness to cover our remaining sin. And so we are saved and loved by God forever. The whole Old Testament pointed ahead to that beautiful reality. But Jesus... And that Old Testament message is a stumbling stone to those whose proud hearts want to boast in their own righteousness. But Jesus is the best news in the world for those whose humble hearts admit, I need a savior. I need a savior. Jesus, you are the savior. Save me. I trust you. Okay, so from the human side, that's why only a few of the people of Israel are saved. That's why they rejected God's law, which promised them the undeserved gift of righteousness through the Messiah. And when Jesus, the gift of perfect righteousness came, they rejected him as well. That's why. But remember, God promises there will always be a remnant. There will always be a remnant. And then at the end, I'm going to banish ungodliness from Jacob. I'm going to cleanse them from their sin. All of ethnic Israel at the end of history is going to become, all of ethnic Israel who are alive on the earth are going to become saved. So that's where this is all going. It's a beautiful picture of what God's promised for Gentiles, many saved, what God's promised for Israel, many saved, always a remnant, many saved. It's a beautiful picture. This is where we're going in chapters 10 and 11. But let me ask, what does this mean for us tonight here at Grace Church? What does this mean for you? What does this mean? First of all, I'm sure some of you here have been trying to gain righteousness before God by your own obedience. Some of you are, have never put your trust in Christ, but you deeply, keenly sense that there is a God and you know you need to be righteous before him and you are trying. Now, You're right that you need righteousness. You desperately need righteousness. You, me, we've all sinned. We need righteousness before God. But with all due respect, you are wrong to think that you can earn your own righteousness by your obedience. Got good news for you. You can't and you don't need to. You understand that? Freedom in Christ. See, baptism won't save you. Church attendance won't save you. Giving money to the church won't save you. None of those things will save you. 
trying to be nice to your dog, won't save you. None of that stuff is going to make you righteous enough before God. You cannot do it. Jesus did it. Jesus offers it to you. Trust him. Put your trust, admit your need, cast yourself at Jesus' feet and say, I trust you. Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. You will be forgiven, clothed with this perfect righteousness instantly. Your life will be changed. Others of you are trusting Jesus. But if we're honest, won't we all admit how easily we can slip back into trying to make ourselves righteous before God, trying to earn righteousness before God by our obedience? We all struggle with that, I would guess, every week. No one's nodding, but uh, hopefully you are inside. Think about it. We can do things saying, well, you know, if I do this, then God's going to do something good for me. If, if I, you know, I've, 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 I lost my patience with my kids, so I can't pray yet because I'm so sinful. I, I've got to go do something good before I can come and start to pray again. All that is completely wrong. By faith alone in Christ, we are forgiven and we are clothed with this perfect righteousness. And then flowing out of that transformation comes beautiful righteousness and beautiful works. Not perfect righteousness, not perfect works, but beautiful works. So understand, we can do nothing to earn anything, to earn, to earn anything from God. Earning is not grace. It's all grace. So it's none earned. We are 100% in need of mercy. Mercy. Listen to this. Even our best moments of obedience, our best moments have tinges of sin in them. Feel that. We need Jesus' death to cover even our best moments of obedience. Let that, oh, church, let that just humble us. Keep obeying. And then, oh, Lord, forgive me for some prideful motives for whatever it might be. So turn from any thoughts of trying to earn righteousness from God by what you do. Self-righteousness, works righteousness, trying to earn righteousness before God, deadly satanic deceptions that too many churchgoers fall into. And it is a lie from the pit of hell meant to take us away from Christ and be relying on our own obedience. Don't let it happen. Cast yourself afresh at the feet of Jesus. Trust him. Trust him. Not your works, not your obedience, not your ministry. Trust Jesus. And because you're trusting him, understand all your sins are completely forgiven. You are clothed with his perfect righteousness and God is 100% committed forever, forever, 100% committed to loving you, caring for you, keeping you on the road to heaven and satisfying you completely in his presence. God is 100% committed to that, not because of the righteousness you've earned, but because you've trusted in Christ who is our righteousness. Trust Christ. Let's be completely free, church, of self-righteousness, works righteousness, trying to earn righteousness from God. Let's let Jesus Christ be glorified as our righteousness. There's our righteousness, Jesus. Beautiful, sinless, perfect righteousness. He, he's the one who God wants to, the Father wants to glorify forever as the righteous one. Not us, him. 
Let's trust him and let him take that place. Let's stand. Father, I pray that you would open any eyes that are blinded to think that they can become righteous by their own efforts. Lord, open eyes to see the lie of that, the, the danger of that, the enslavement of that, and set us as a church free from that now, I pray in Jesus' name. And oh Lord, we all want to be falling at your feet, Jesus Christ, trusting you. You are the righteousness we need. You are the forgiveness that we need. And you will give that to us by faith alone. We trust you as our Savior. We trust you as our Lord. We trust you as our all-satisfying treasure. Be glorified as our salvation, as our righteousness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.